You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, who spent over 20 years in special operations and now is a stuntman and actor. Wow, what a story you're going to hear. More on that coming up in just a moment. Reminder, as we approach the holidays, um, you guys got to do some Amazon shopping. Go to our website first, hazardground.com. Click on that Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We will get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. It's an easy way to help out vets uh, just from doing your normal Amazon shopping throughout the holidays. Make sure you go to hazardground.com first. As well, follow us on other social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at hazardground, at hazardground podcast. Check us out there. Keep up with the show. Feel free to DM us. Let us know your thoughts. If you have any questions, we'll try to get to them all as soon as we can. And, of course, don't forget to leave us Apple reviews. This will help grow the show. Give us a five-star rating. Let us know what you love about the Hazard Ground. We'll try to take some of those and post them on social media as well. We appreciate all the love and support you guys have given the show as we continue to grow here on the Hazard Ground. All right, this week's guest um, is a retired Army Master Sergeant who spent all of his 20 years in the military in the special operations community, ultimately ending up with the special forces before he got out and spent five years as a contractor. He's got multiple deployments overseas, not only in the Army, but as time as a contractor as well. He is writing a book right now, or has written a book that isn't fully published yet. We'll get to the details of that. It's called Broken Toys. But he now has transitioned into a career in film as a stuntman, an actor, and writer. Just an incredible transition. Uh, he and I met at a film premiere here in the Atlanta area. He is Renford Lagon joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Ren, welcome, brother. Great to, uh, great to meet you. Great to be here. Hey, Mark, thanks a lot, man. Hey, it's great to be here. Love the opportunity. Well, it's interesting. You know, I'll say this much um, for, the, for the audience watching and listening. The moment I met you, man, it was just like a fireball. It was like right there. Like Ren was all in. Uh, the energy is palpable. Uh, the excitement is there. I, I know you were pumped to see uh, the MVP movie premiere about merging vets and players, the, uh, the, the veterans uh, nonprofit group out there. But, you know, you just you, you had all the energy. You brought it all, man. And I can tell that was kind of you from the very start of your military career and forward. Yeah, thanks a lot. It was an uh, uh, opportunity then to meet other veterans doing something in this space. Right. I definitely want to be a part of something like this just because I know the transition is a, it's a lot harder for a lot of guys. It is. Yeah. You know, so. So 20 years in um, starts, you know, way back in the early 90s, it is, right? Um, yeah, when, 92, actually. 92. When, and, when and why and, and how'd you end up in the military? Uh, I, uh, big football guy coming out of high school, playing football. I had the opportunity to go uh, go to college. So went to college to uh, play football and not college. So uh, my uh, my college stint was uh, short lived, if you would. Uh, from there, I came home to Dayton, Ohio. I I kind of knew I didn't want to go into the General Motors, the Frigidaire, the Mead Paper Company, typically any of those things. So I just decided to join the Ranger Battalion. So I went down to the Army recruiter, raised my right hand, and joined the Ranger Battalion at uh, 19 years old. Now, you told me earlier that you were actually homeless at one point. Yes. Yeah, my, my high school years was in flux. 
uh, parents divorce, you know, money situation, finances, mom, single parent, uh, had a handicapped little brother, you know, rest in peace to my little brother. So it was just that, that headspace, you know, four different high schools. It was, it was challenging just to get out of high school. Ridiculous. Ridiculous to say the least. So, but, you know, I mean, let me, I mean, big picture, you look back on those years where you were homeless. I mean, how formative were they? Um, I guess, you know, is survival the right word in the military? I mean, is it something that aided you at some point in trying to become a Green Beret? Like, is that, you know, where you uh, sort of get that, that never quit mentality from? Uh, you know, not not just for Green Beret. What I got from my uh, my time being uh, homeless, if you would, was I'm more couch surfing as opposed to sleeping under a bridge, you know, to kind of clarify that. But when you're couch surfing, you know, not to drink the last of the juice. Don't eat the last of this, you know, things like that. Cause you're at somebody's house, just that ultimate respect that I learned for somebody else's space. When I joined the military, it was kind of easy transition with that. You know, kind of, that's not chores. Don't touch it. Makes sense. Um, so you get in and you go right into the army Rangers. Like, did you know that's what you wanted to do or how did you arrive at that? I, this is a hilarious story. One of my cousins, uh, when I was probably about 12, had joined the army. Uh, he was 11 Bravo infantry guy. He was definitely the hardest human being I'd ever met. Uh, and he was like, hey, those airborne rangers, them some bad boys. I was like, really? Why didn't you do it? He was like, shh, because I ain't that bad. So we, uh, we, laughed, we laugh about that now, you know, now that he's probably 60. He's like, you still think you're tougher than me? I'm like, I mean, <laughs> so... It's kind of good. And that's why I just said, hey, I want to be an Airborne Ranger. The recruiter asked me if I knew what it was. I said, nope, but my cousin told me it was hard. Yeah, when you walk into a recruiter's office and tell them you want something, uh, if they can give it to you, they don't, they don't put up much resistance. And no, you know what no. it is? No, dad, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Sign right here. Everything's fine. Hashtag not, my, not my problem. Not my problem once I, I get you through MEPS, right? Uh, it's not my issue anymore. Uh, I get credit once you ship, and that's all I care about. Welcome to recruiting. Anyway, um, so you head off and not knowing what it is. So was there a point early on at basic or anything where you said, whoa, what what did I get myself into? Uh, You know what? Talking with the other recruits, you know, uh, because I had a ranger contract. Mm -hmm. See, I didn't go infantry. When I first joined the Army, I came in the Army as a uh, supply specialist. It was a shorter trans, shorter turnaround, infantry, 11 months wait. My mom wasn't going to have me on the couch for 11 months. She was like, hey, do something better. So I left, became a logistics guy. As I'm going through basic and AIT, when I'm in AIT about to ship to airborne school, guys are like, hey, that guy got a ranger contract. And everybody in my AIT class was looking at me like I was a maniac. They were like, you're going to go, you are nuts, man. So that kind of gave me the, oh, you got to do some research on this. What is this actually? I can walk through the woods. What sort of research did you do? (laughs) None. Okay. Hey, listen, Uh, sometimes ignorance is bliss, right? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so uh, you head off to airborne school, uh, jumping out of planes, all it was cracked up to be for you? Uh, the very first airplane I was ever in, I jumped out of it. With a parachute, I hope, I assume? Yes, please. Yeah, with a parachute, you know. So Fort Benning, Georgia, my very first time on an airplane, and I was the number one guy in the door. Oh, really? Yes. It was, It was. hey, buddy, this is one of them, you know, get or get off the pot moments. Right now. Yeah. So, uh, w- w- were you a boot in the middle of your back kind of guy, or you just ran right out? Ran right out. Okay. Ran right out. This is it. 
this is it. This is this is what I signed up for. I, I don't have commitment issues. I figured that, hey, man, if I do my part, everybody around me is going to do theirs. So let's go. Uh, yeah, I, there's a difference between commitment issues and, uh, you know, uh, fear of going splat issues, which uh, are two, two <laughs> completely different sets of issues. All right, so you finish Airborne School. Do you go right to Ranger School right after Airborne? Uh, no, uh, after Airborne School, you go through, uh, at the time it was called Ranger Indoctrination. Yeah, RIP, program. right, okay. RIP. So I went to RIP, got the battalions uh, uh, as a unit supply specialist. Probably spent about 10 months uh, before I went to Ranger School. So I had about, yeah, about eight months in Ranger Battalion before they sent me to Ranger School. Because, you know, the order merit list, a lot of infantry guys have already been there. They're looking sure. for a class. I'm a supply dude. I'm not a priority. So All right, so you went right to Ranger Regiment first, right, obviously? Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, we say uh, I grew up in battalion. Makes like, sense. I was ready in battalion. It's a difference. The school is a school, scroll, way of life. The fact that you didn't know anything about, like, the military or anything that you were getting into, did did people look at you funny because you weren't an infantryman inside the regiment? Yeah. You, you get that, that slight hazing, you know, hey, at the end of the day, dude, you're a clerk, you know, hey, you're not infantry, you're not like the rest of us. I get it. Uh, once you go on a few missions, do some PT together, uh, going to Ranger School was key in the Ranger Battalion. Like, you don't have a tab, hit the slab kind of deal. So once I got my tab and everybody kind of realized, like, hey, we, we have a supply clerk that's shooting expert with every weapon that, you know, he's working the radios. He's jumping in with the guys. He's making all the road marches. See, how oh, we got a supply dude that's a stud. So it's kind of like in Ranger Battalion, you still got to. The same standard did, is for everybody. Did that so. sort of uh, physical prowess, was that something where you were just mentally like, hey, I don't know much, but I just know as long as I don't let anybody beat me physically, I'll be okay? Yes. In the Ranger Battalion mentality, yes. It, it's kind of a might is right uh, unit. You know, we're young. A lot of guys in there, you know, prior football players mm-hmm. and, you know, track and field guys, wrestlers, MMA, like you name it. Everybody want to stay champion. So, like, you go in the room and say, hey, man, I was states in what? Okay, I was wrestling. Oh, wow, okay, that's cool. So I can compete. It's like a daily competition. Right. So, What was the toughest part of Ranger School for you? Uh, being peered, actually. Why? Being peered. That was the toughest part in Ranger School for me. Because, like, you know, you work and you work and you work, and then when uh, your peers say that you're the weakest link, you know, it takes an a, a ego blow. You know, I'm in a mountain phase. I've been carrying all the heavy stuff for the duration of, and uh, at the end of that, I mean, I still end up going straight through Ranger School, but just not being accepted. You know, I come from inner city where I'm often not accepted. I'm a, I'm a, uh, as we know, Rangers is, I'm a minority. Let's just be honest. You know, in special ops on the whole, you know, so it's kind of one of those things like, hey, you know, eh, whatever. So that that kind of stung a little bit, but it was what it was. I still got my tabs, so it didn't matter. Did you ever figure out why you got peered? You know, some things like to research and ask around the guys like, hey, man, what did I do wrong? It's a mute point. We're here. We're in survival mode. After after mountain phase in ranger school, you just want to survive. You just want this to be over. Yeah. So heading down to Florida, linked up with another bunch of guys. And what's funny is the platoon that I, I uh, was peered to couldn't believe that I got peered. Right. And, and for the like, for the civilians listening, just to provide some context, in Ranger School you get a peer evaluation, meaning everybody else in your squad will sort of write uh, and evaluate your performance. And if they all 
feel negatively about your performance, you can actually get peered and put out of Ranger School altogether. They can Correct. send you home. Uh, for you, as, as you just got sent to another platoon or another squad um, to go finish the rest of Ranger School. So um, when, when you got to your new, your new squad, your new platoon, was anything different? Did it feel different? Did you work harder? Were you mentally in a different spot? Uh, the new platoon was was very acceptance and and actually when when they kind of realized that I was very knowledgeable because the last platoon I was with was full of bad boys, hundred first guys, eighty second, things of that nature. So I was always in 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 stride with the infantry guys. So when I got there to that platoon, I already knew how to be a platoon sergeant. I knew a lot of the requirements there, and then I still, you know, physically I was still pretty uh, pretty good to go in Ranger School. Just you know, in my mental space. I shrugged my shoulders at a lot of stuff. I can't change that. But, no, those guys were accepting. We had a great time. Um, and uh, we all got our tab. Getting your tab, uh, one of the biggest days of your life or sort of no big deal, just another day? Uh, yes and no. Biggest okay. days of my life during that time in the Ranger Battalion because I knew once I got back, right. it was kind of like Leonidas just went out and now he came <laughs> back with the, with the lion skin, you know, the wolf skin, like, hey, you know. I got my tab, you know, hey, I'm a supply clerk with a ranger tab. See, now the infantry guys can't. Like, hey, man, if you're infantry with no ranger tab, you know, so it's kind of one of those, you know, one of those things. So I felt great. Yes. Yeah, it was. It was a huge accomplishment. Yeah. In retrospect, I'm just sort of curious. That mentality of if you don't have a tab, you're this, or if you don't have wings, you're that, or whatever. Now that you've spent over 20 years and you're away from the military now, is that mentality dangerous? Is it childish? Is it immature? Like, what? where do you sort of put that whole thing? Because I think there's a place for it, but in the same respect, it's like we've taken a much more holistic approach to everything in America. You know, it doesn't have to be if you're not one of us, you're against us kind of deal. Like, that's more divisive than anything. So where does that sort of mentality fit for you? Uh, well, at, at that time, it was, hey, you get your ranger tab, you can kind of have a uh, rite of passage, if right. you would. Uh, now, looking back on it, Childish, honestly, hazing, foolish, smoking guy, you know, having, hey, get out and do 100 push-ups because you walked by me and looked at me wrong. Why? So, but at the time in that place, to have uh, the unity and the guys wound tight like that, I think it was a time and place for that. Because like anybody who I spent in Ranger, with, in Ranger Battalion afterwards would probably agree more so with me that it is divisive. Hey, if you ain't got a ranger tab, you're less than me. So now, you know, as we get, as we mature, it's just like, Hey man, you know, it's probably still a good guy. He just can't pass that school. It's just a school. Well, you know, and again, uh, I've said this routinely and you learn this through combat deployments, both big and small, but everybody's mm -hmm. piece, everybody has a piece of the pie and, and some people's piece of the pie is bigger than others. Some people's piece mm -hmm. of the pie is more important than others. There's no doubting there are certain missions that are more important than others. That said, you don't make the whole pie without every piece. So no matter how small it is, your piece is your piece. And if you do your piece, you're part of the, the whole effort. And I, I don't think we should ever underscore that, especially when it comes to mass-level combat operations like we did for 20 years in Afghanistan and, you know, 10-plus years in Iraq. But, again, that's a sort of existential philosophical conversation for another time. Um, that said, so after you get done with Ranger School – um, you start, you know, the, the, the big part of your career here. And I don't want to fast forward too much. I just sort of ask of anything of note because at some point you decide you want to go be a Green Beret. So what happens between 
the time you decided to be a Green Beret and when you first get out of Ranger School? Uh, I first get out of Ranger School, I go back to battalion. I realize that I'm still a supply guy, even with a Ranger tab. You know, so it's still a certain level of you're still just a supply guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm, I'm in my early 20s. I'm maturing out of that mindset. So I went over and applied for a third 160, a task force 160, the aviation unit right there at Hunter Army Airfield because I was the first Ranger Battalion. Yep. So basically, I PCS across base, which was good. <laughs> Met a lot of good guys there. And uh, I went from uh, everybody yelling, Ranger Battalion, hut, 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 to an aviation unit that was like, um, I'm not going to yell at you, but you have 30 seconds to get this done. <laughs> So <laughs> how do you want to gauge it? So with that mentality and mindset, and then I saw uh, a bigger picture of special operations because in the range of battalion, you got a rucksack. What's in that rucksack is your life. When I got to 160th, I realized uh, pilots got to sleep a certain time. Mechanics got to function at a certain time. This equipment needs to be checked. Ranger, it's you, your weapon, rucksack. So yeah, in 160th, I saw the big picture and I was like, hey, uh, I don't want to be a clerk anymore. We worked with some uh, Green Berets at uh, JRTC. And, uh, and I was like, so what all do you got? Because at this time, still, I had no idea what a Green Beret did. I was in a Ranger Battalion. You don't have Green Berets in Ranger Battalion. I mean, 160th, if there's a Special Forces guy in the building, he's a pilot now. And you don't interact with him. So, But I met a Green Beret at JRTC. And he said, no, nah, man, actually, it's a really good life, man. And it's better than typing all day. It yeah. is. Uh, yeah. Again, uh, for, <laughs> yeah. fortunate enough to have to spend some time inside a group. It is a very good life. Uh, and, and <laughs> yes. had, I, like you, had I not had the naivete I had for the military in general, might have chose a different path had I been made aware of it at an earlier point in my career. But, you know, again, um, it's, it's that life that sort of, I, I think certain personalities mesh really well with it. You know, and you're, you're a lot of your standard – uh, Ranger bat guys aren't always of that ilk because they are so regimented because they have only been brought up to believe a certain or trained a certain way to get outside Correct. that box is very uncomfortable for them. And hence why it's unconventional warfare, because it's not inside a box. It's, it's unconventional. There, there are different ways to skin the cat as they say. Um, so when you find out that there, there is this other world out there for you, what steps do you take? Uh, I, um, basically talked to my platoon sergeant at the time and he said, Hey, I can introduce you to an SF recruiter. He introduced me to an SF recruiter, uh, took the uh, initial PT test, passed PT test. You know, I had to wait maybe three or four months for my selection date. Still no guaranteed. I'm going to be a a SF guy. Uh, And I went to selection Mm -hmm. and uh, obviously passed selection, came back to the unit and uh, pretty much PCS from there. When you went to selection, I want to ask you, because I'm always curious about the experience. It was this, when did you go to selection? Like month and year time frame? This pre-9-11, pre, uh, pre obviously. 90, when was it? Uh, 99. Okay. I want to say, yeah. Yeah. No, my, yes. Because my class date was class 499. Okay. So um, assessment and selection, and for, again, for those civilians listening, basically or in order to get even a chance to go to uh, special forces school, you got to pass assessment and selection where they weed out certain guys. And, um, you know, that experience it's was three weeks back then, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. Uh, what was the hardest part of that for you? 
And I mean hardest, like more physically, yeah. mentally, everything all together. Uh, hardest part for like, just for me personally, for selection, the, the unknown, really the, they, they put you in a mental space with certain tasks that, um, it made me better at being special forces. Uh, so selection works, but the hardest thing was, you know, you make friends like the first week with some guys, you're from all over the army. You know, hey, John, Steve, Mark, you know, Joe, Ren, you know, we're all in the same squad. And by week two, you're like the only person left in that squad. So they start congesting. So you make new friends. And as you make new friends, it's kind of like, well, I'm not going to make any more friends because you may quit tomorrow or you may twist your ankle or you may fail to land nav or one of the, you know, gates you may not get through. So. I mean, because out of 300 students, I want to say that we graduated from selection. Uh, I think like 60 finished, and they selected like 35 of us. So, anybody, yeah. anybody get road killed? Yes, we had three guys get road killed. Hey, when you do a land nap, don't run on the roads. Man. Yeah, they, they <laughs> basically they drop you off in the middle of the woods and tell you to find your way out, but they have the standard rule: you can't get within 100 meters of a road because. Obviously, it's easy to figure out where you are if you see a road and you're basically figuring out, you know, you can orient yourself on the map based on the terrain features and it's sort of cheating. So I've talked to a bunch of guys who went through assessment uh, and told me road killed stories and, you know, how they tried to weasel their way out of, no, no, I wasn't doing that. I was, I was, I was doing this. I was here because they got RIs like, you know, or, or, uh, you know, cadre along the road, just waiting for people to come within sight and go, boom, I got you, man. So, and, and the bigger part of that, honestly, and correct me if I'm wrong here with the, you know, with road kills, it's not so much that you, they don't want you to use the terrain, but it's also just a, a matter of, uh, you know, integrity, right? Like, Hey, we asked you to do something keep to your word and do what you said we were supposed to do and what we asked you to do, because ultimately that level of word is always going to be challenged when it needs need, when they need you the most to be effective. Correct. Correct. Cause, and, and that's the one, one tremendous thing picking up from my special forces. Cause like, for instance, one event would say, Hey, we're going to do a run. We're going to do a run for an undetermined amount of time for an undetermined amount of distance. Do you have any questions? But don't veer off the path. Like, don't look for a shortcut. Because uh, one, shortcuts get people killed. Mm-hmm. Just there. That's just, I can just lay that flat. That's that's the end of that statement. Short, shortcuts get you killed. Yeah, it's a, and that's, why, that's, that's what I think is so incredibly challenging about it is, you know, it's weird how they want you to understand. You're working to train in an unconventional environment, but they want you to sort of, stay within a certain box at least at the beginning and not let your mind wander um, because they need to understand what your mindset is in general. Because the biggest thing is, again, I mean, you'll quickly out yourself, whether you're out for you or you're part of the team. And that's the other part, I think, of assessment and selection that they're trying to weed out is whether you take care of you, you take care of the guy next to you first. Correct. Correct. That's that's the, the, the team week portion of it. If you cannot work with 11 strangers – because that's the world that you're entering into, that you're just a team me kind of guy, they, they, they'll sniff it out. If not, those 11 guys, because like to the point of the peers from uh, Ranger School, say, they, they peer in special forces also. 
After you get through assessment and selection, how much time between then and when you go to the Q course? Um, probably 30 days. Okay. I had a, a quick turn, mm-hmm. a quick, quick 30 day PCS, you know, throw my stuff. I lived in the barracks, single guy. I, I was an easy move. I basically went from barracks to barracks to Fort Bragg. So I start off, uh, uh, class 99. So that's when, uh, so go ahead. By the time you're done, um, and you choose, you choose what specification at that point in time. Cause again, for those who aren't familiar with SF, you know, they have a weapons sergeant, they have a, a intelligence sergeant, they have a communication sergeant, they have, which discipline did you choose at the time? Uh, I chose a communication sergeant. Okay. Uh, two, two reasons. One, uh, my, my time in the Ranger Battalion, I was the first sergeant's RTO. So ah. what I enjoyed about that, I could hear what was going on. <laughs> I could hear the big picture. So, <laughs> you know, so I was like, yeah, communications would be good for me. I'm comfortable with it. I just didn't realize that uh, it was going to be so heavy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that radio. 100 pounds of lightweight equipment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, carrying that radio everywhere starts to get a real, be a real pain in the ass. Um, yeah. All right, so you finish. Now, kind of fast-forwarding a little bit, you end up at which group at the time? Seventh? Uh, seventh group. Uh, right there at Fort Bragg. My uh, area of operations was uh, South America, so mm-hmm. they sent me to language school so I could learn Spanish. So I was able to learn Spanish and then we would go down to South America and train, advise and assist. You know, we, we all, we all familiar with the global war on terror just as well as we are the global war on drugs. So being a member of seven group, that's, you know, you train, advise and assist their local agencies or, you know, soldiers that's out, you know, fighting that war front line, you know? So that was, that was very interesting to see being inner city, and then going to Colombia and seeing how they make powder cocaine. Ah. If you saw that, you would never do it. Oh, really? <laughs> now I'm curious. Not that I would yeah, I, ever try to make powder cocaine, but I'm just had had if can it starts you, can from you, a leaf. Uh starts from a leaf, they chop it up, they pour diesel fuel, fuel like gasoline, dissolve it down. It's this black, muddy paste kind of thing to come out on the backside of that. Then they'll like try it out via microwave or whatever they have to process it. Uh, basically get all the moisture out of it. Then they start adding all kind of other stuff to it to, you know, dyes and stuff like that. Cause actual cocaine is black. Mm-hmm. Those are dyes and different uh, uh, things that they introduce to that. To make it to that bring- white powder. Yep. To bring the final product. Huh. Well, yep. And the cocaine that comes out of Colombia initially is so potent. If you were to snort that, you would die. So by the time it goes from real, like, 100% pure cocaine, if you would, to street value, it's probably, I don't know, and I may be exaggerating a bit, but probably about a tenth of the actual product. That was produced. Wow. That's the that's how lucrative it is. If I make something for a hundred dollars and I could sell it after I split it five or six times or ten times, the hundred just made me a thousand. 
Yeah, so. well, I mean, listen, thank you for the lesson that I went into the wrong career in life. Uh, yeah, that, that's I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> we should have been outlaws. If, 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 if only I had worked, if only they had taught me about Colombian drug lords when I was in you know grammar school, I might have had a different future. Uh, anyway, I digress. Uh, so that experience aside, where are you on nine eleven when everything goes down? Uh, nine eleven. I was actually a cadre. Uh, we have this thing called red cycle tasking, right? Which is like a uh, uh, consider uh, not assistant principal, but a substitute teacher. So we do substitute teaching out in Fort Bragg for new students, new classes. 9-11 happened, and I was in the woods at Camp McCall with, uh, with the class, uh, the 9-11 class, obviously. And funny thing is I went back to the field after we had found out, talked to the cadre about what happened. And I told the guys out there, I said, uh, I got good news and I got bad news. They said, hey, start with the good news first. I said, I'm pretty sure if you don't, uh, you know, commit fratricide or, or, or beat up your buddy out here, you're going to pass. They said, what's the bad news? I said, y'all probably going to go straight to war. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, that's, that's one way to break it to them. Um, yeah. So, but for you, I mean, did you think that you were going to go straight to war or you know you had to finish out this well, assignment first? Uh, I knew I was finishing up the, uh, uh, obviously me being in seventh group, the, uh, you know, the, the, the towers, right. they'll find out it's a, a Middle East problem. Mm-hmm. We knew that probably fifth group guys that were just more familiar with that uh, area of operations, if you would, were going first. So, you know, as they went, a handful of guys went and my rotation actually was uh, OEF two. So we were actually the backfiller for the very first rotation. So, okay. So, you, but we knew where we were going. You get to Afghanistan when? Uh, I got to Afghanistan in 02. Okay. Where, where in Afghanistan were you? Uh, we started off at Kandahar and then we went to uh, De Rawood, which uh, Firebase Tice okay. is where we were stationed at. As we were, we were, we were literally uh, in the build up phases of the point of like we didn't have sandbags. Yeah. You no, know, we didn't have yeah. enough. We didn't know what all we were going to need. So now, it was a wild west, to say the least. OIF2, uh, oh, sorry, OEF2, rather. Probably, you said no, too. I, I assume probably around March or April of, of 2002 is when you get there, right? Correct. Okay. Yep. Um, yeah, because, you know, again, for people, the math is easy. If we invaded in October of 2001, about six months later, seven months later is when, you know, groups rotate out. Um at that point in time, you know, we hadn't really developed counterinsurgency yet. I mean, we were still hunting the big guy. Is that what everything was geared towards during that deployment? Uh, no. Okay. No. During, during that deployment, it was more, okay, we have identified the Taliban is the oppressor of right. this country. And it was pretty much, let's find or fix, if you would, uh, all the uh, members of the Taliban and just allow these people freedom of movement, safety in their own town. Cause now we know what the bad guy is. So we basically just went on a, uh, I don't know, we find bad guys. So we were like the town's police. Right. If you would, the Taliban it was all high going. value target searching, right? Yeah. Period. Okay. What was the yeah. operational tempo? Like, I mean, you know, and this will sort of transition because, you know, the intelligence at that point in the time on the ground was still very new and young. 
It, it was non-existent to, <laughs> to put it flat. I was putting. It was not. I was trying to be generous to our intelligence community. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was non-existent. That, but that's fine because we didn't realize that we were going to have to fight a war in Afghanistan. Right. So we just didn't have the jackets. We didn't have the the, the history built up on it. So missions from that time in O two were information gathering, uh, just kind of developing neighborhoods. Hey, who lives here? Like we do here, like who's the lady at the corner store? Okay, well, Miss Smith runs the corner store. I know her. Hey, but John Doe is the bad boy in town, so on and so forth. So as we were gathering uh, uh, just basically intelligence on who we could trust and who we couldn't trust, and then feeding that up to the intelligence community as on-the-ground guys. So like we weren't intelligence, but we're observers. You know, you could at least come in and kind of understand what it is, so... That was like our missions then would be nine days, 10 days. We'd leave the fire base and come back two weeks later, living off the land, driving around in these RVs. Now that's non-existent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, How much uh, direct action were you involved in or that wasn't really the goal? Uh, Well, I was on a direct action team when I went to special forces. When I got to seventh group, my entire time in seventh group, I've only been on direct action team. Okay. So we like the thing with direct action, you have to start off with gathering information. So that way you aren't, we're not dealing with the, oh, they just shot up, uh, uh, you know, uh, with women and children. No, no, we didn't. We gathered the intelligence, provided that. Now us as a direct action team, we can action that individual, if you would. So, yeah, we know that Bob is a butthead that lives down here on third. We now know that we can go get Bob bring him in for questioning and uh, decide where to go from there. So as we were developing that portion of Afghanistan. Did you get your first combat experience on this deployment? Yes. Yes. Well, my first on the ground combat experience, I was, yeah. Yes. Well, and the only reason I ask again, you know, it's just kind of one of those things where, you know, you go back to that, that kid who didn't really know what he was getting himself into and just, you know, they said it was cool. Um, you know, that's the part of cool that, you know, changes definition. Yeah, maybe that wasn't so cool. It wasn't as cool as I thought it was going to be. So was that first combat experience as cool as you thought it was going to be? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) It was the opposite of what I thought cool would be. What happened? You know, we train, you know, fast roping, hitting targets, you know, uh, tearing up towns, the silhouettes, you know, we are shooting up all the paper targets. Well, now this combat experience, like, hey, we're going to ride around for eight days and gather intelligence. I'm like, that's not cool. (laughs) They're like, well, people may shoot at us. I was like, well, that's not cool either. So (laughs) I don't, you know, so that was kind of one of those, you know, garnering that information. Just that, that experience of that, whenever you go to combat with a guy or girl, you, you get it or you don't. Some guys will go one time and they're like, this never again. I don't want to be a Green Beret anymore. This is too far. I saw some of my friends get killed, even on my very first uh, deployment. Uh, guys injured still, you know, missing limbs, things of that nature. That's kind of like what they, they don't brief you for that, that a guy you graduate the Q course with is going to be the first, like, one-legged jump master in the Army. Wow. You know, and it's like, well, my, uh, a guy named Mike Fairfax, hilarious, good dude. So you know, just things like that. They didn't 
prepare you for that. Were you, were you there when, when Mike lost his leg? No, no, he was actually on the, uh, the rotation prior to me. Okay, gotcha. So, you know, IDs, you know, pe- people put bombs in the ground over there. So that was something that was challenging as well. It's like, hey, I want to, I'm looking for a bad guy, but I just hit a, a, a improvised explosive device that someone buried under the dirt and things like that. It's just like, because back then we weren't as good at mind detecting. As we were last time, mind detecting happened. It was Vietnam. Mm-hmm. You know, equipment strategies, all that had to basically be a reset and refit because now we're in a terrain not wooded. You know, we're not. Hey, the Viet Cong says don't walk on the trail. Well, we're driving on a road. What does they say about that? Right. You know. So that was that was a new development of a you know just battlefield focus and kind of where we pushed to that. So, I mean, how much did the the idea of casualties change you personally throughout that first deployment? Well, luckily, uh, knock on wood, my detachment did not suffer any casualties. Right. Um, But as it was going on, I was able to see how it affected other guys that was on the team with the casualty. You know what I mean? It's like Mark, me and you on missions and, you know, John went through the course with us and John's no longer here with us. Like, but you were on the ODA with him. That's going to affect you different than it is me. Cause I'm be like, Hey Mark, how you doing? You're like, man, that was jacked up. You know, sometimes some guys go out for blood at that moment, like that fight or flight that we hear about. Some guys go to blood. Some guys, Go home. Yeah. I mean, it's, I've seen it, you know. Every, right? Everyone's a tough guy until the first bullet whizzes by their ear, and all of a sudden, real gets real, and, uh, you know, it changes mm-hmm. the game. Which, and again, I don't, I don't ever look down on anybody for that. You know, the human condition is the human condition, and, and not everybody's cut from the same cloth in general. Like, it's like you talked about before. There are some guys who are meant to be Green Berets, and, and everything else, and the elite of the elite, and some folks aren't. That doesn't mean they're bad people, or even they're bad yeah. soldiers, for that matter. They're just they're just different. And uh, you know, I, I never I never had the pleasure of going or the the opportunity to do what you did. But uh, at least I can put my head on the pillow, knowing that you know my fight or flight led towards fight instead of flight, and that that's enough for me. Like I don't, you know, I'm not, you know, trying to compare myself to anybody else. I don't think we should ever get in that game. Period, mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. the mission sets are completely different. I didn't have to kick down doors. I just had to survive. And there's a little bit of a different, different mentality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But one thing that, uh, uh, when I became a team sergeant, one thing I would always tell my guys, Hey man, without support, we are naked throwing rocks. All right, gentlemen, do y'all get that? Cause we need to eat. I need boots. I need bullets. I need clothes. I need air. I need support. And me coming from a, logistics background that's a logistician right there yep yep i knew i knew i was like hey man don't don't treat everybody like crap because you know what without them our job is going to be much harder well listen you know it's funny when i i got attached to fifth group and 10th group uh and then fifth group again over the course of a year plus uh in mm-hmm. in 05 to 05 to 06 and i was the main logistical guys i'm a logistics officer I was the main logist- led the main logistical effort for the whole thing on twofold. You know, one to support the right. ISOF brigade, and the other one is to provide the Americans, you know, with what they needed. And 
you know, I, I've said routinely, you know, one of the most rewarding things for me was knowing that I was trusted enough by the team guys to be able to get stuff. They would walk, hey, Mark, I need this. Mark, I need that. No problem. I'll get back to you in 24 hours, and, I, and here's an answer. Fine. I mean, it, was, it became a challenge for me to go procure stuff sort of in the SF mentality and that, you know, any size, way, shape, or form, just come back. We needed more bullets for training. Okay, here you go. I got some British five five yeah. six rounds. Works for me. We'll go fire them. Good, right? right? No didn't, work. Didn't no have to work. sign. Didn't have to sign for anything. Just found them. Found them somewhere else on post. Did some driving around. Talked to the right people. Came back. Thank you, Mark. And that's it. Like and and that, you know, again, that's that's sort of what they ask of you, right? That's sort of what the the right. environment, the operational environment requires. And um, you know, knowing that I could deliver when asked was was you know a big source of personal pride for me. But knowing that I was doing my part to make their their job easier. 100%, 100%. And, and I made sure that I, I uh, drove that home with my guys. And what's funny is uh, on the teams, we have a job that's called 18 Charlie. It is the unit engineer. We, we laugh about it because we say they're the biggest thieves on the team because they're our logistics guys. Hey, Red, don't ask where I got these British bullets from. What? Did you talk to Mark? I didn't talk to Mark. I got British bullets. <laughs> Can we go? Uh, all right, fair enough. And that was the I funny. That was the funny thing. Whenever I came back from something, nobody ever asked, "Where'd you get it from?" Okay, nope. thank you. Plausible <laughs> deniability has to be your friend. Yes, right? I want to know. If you, you have ask bullets, it, if you ask a question and you get an answer, you know you're not supposed to get. Then your integrity is on the line, right? If you never ask <laughs> the question, you cannot be forced to tell anything what you don't know. One hundred percent. Yes. Yeah, I'm glad we're on the same page. Um, that first deployment ends and you get back. Um, you go where? Are you right back to Fort Bragg? Yeah, right back to Fort okay. Bragg, uh, right back to uh, seventh group, right? So our mission, uh, uh, shortly after that, you know, our mission was still training the uh, uh, anti-narcotics uh, units down in Columbia. So I come back from Afghanistan, nine-month deployment. I'm home for maybe, I don't know, about two months. About two months. I got about 60 days at home. And then I went to uh, the jungle down there in Columbia, a little spot called La Rondia, Columbia, to hang out uh, for another six months. Uh, then I came back home after that. Uh, now we're looking to 03, 04 time frame. Hold on. Let me ask you a question real quick. I'm sorry to cut you off. I'm just curious. <laughs> Harder to find bad guys in Afghanistan or bad guys in Colombia? Bad guys in Afghanistan. Why? Because they they hide amongst the people. Okay. Bad guys in Colombia, the house on the hill is there for a reason. (laughs) (laughs) There is is no nice mud hut. They all look like mud huts. They're all the same. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That big house with all the glass and the gold plates and everything. Yeah, that guy, that guy, somebody important lives there. Okay. Fair enough. I mean, I guess, you know, is there anything similar about the operational environments? Nope. Night and day. Okay. In my opinion, night and day. Totally two different mindsets. Because one is for finances, right? The Colombian cartel. Right. That's money. Uh, Afghan Taliban is fighting for their way of life amongst the Afghan people. They want to be literally the oppressors. Colombia, they need the people because I need you on drugs. Well, I mean, let me ask about the opium whole deal in Afghanistan. Was any of that part similar? I mean, you know, the whole opium and poppy seed and everything that was out there, is that like anything remotely close to 
Columbia? Uh, yes. Yeah. You, I never worked those areas, if okay. you will, where the opium was really big because the opium was kind of pushing out going over to the Russias and the Europe's and the, you know, okay. the stands, the other outer lying areas to where I was like, okay, the Afghan people, for the most part, don't use it. Huh. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Anyway, okay, sorry. I, I just, the, the whole no, Columbia, Columbia, Afghanistan thing sort of drew some questions in my mind there. Um, so you're back to brag. Now, you switch at some point from a communications sergeant to an intelligence analyst. When does that happen? Uh, when I came back from Columbia, that, uh, uh, that jungle rotation, I came back and I said, well, you know, there's a lot more to this battlefield, which I had uh, gathered in Afghanistan just to kind of see like, how can I be a better special forces soldier? Cause great that I can work a radio and I can kick a door in, but the true strength of ODA is their planning. See, if I'm shooting, something went wrong in planning. Some people are like, Oh, let's just get out there and shoot the bad guys. Well, to your point earlier, when people are shooting back, you are less eager to do that. So if you can plan better. So I was like, hey, I'm going to go to the Intel Sergeant's course, which is the 18 Fox. Uh, went to the Intel Sergeant's course, came back from the uh, Intel Sergeant's course and uh, went to sniper school. Mm-hmm. Finished up sniper school, had a great time in sniper school, sold it, level one. It's boasted as one of two of the best sniper schools on the planet. Uh, so I did that and I came back and I got a call from the SIF, uh, Commanders and Extremist Force. Within some uh, groups, seventh group, you have one company that's considered a specialty company, which is like a direct action company. Uh, kind of like the if there was a big brother in special forces, like we're the big brother. Like you've been around for five years now on our ODA. You know, natural progression for some guys. So I got a call from the Sergeant Major and he said, hey, man, we just got pinged to go to Iraq. And uh, Rennie, I would like for you to go. He went to Afghanistan with me. Now he was the uh, Sergeant Major over in a C-37, which is Charlie Company, 7th Special Forces. And he said, you just got to go to Safartech and pass Safartech. I mean, another one of those schools that everybody goes and passes. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not. So I went to Safartech in uh, 05. I'm, I'm in the, uh, I'm in C-37. And I find myself uh, uh, in Iraq. And by oh, the way, wow. real quick, just uh, Safartech Special Forces Advanced Reconnaissance Target Analysis and Exploitation te- Techniques course, uh, which is a mouthful, to say the least. Yeah. Yes. I mean, to say the least. Um, it's a direct action. Basically, uh, if like if you've ever watched SWAT, mm-hmm. right, you know, to, to put it in a uh, 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 civilian kind of palette, you know, it's like, hey, you know, I'm watching I'm watching SWAT. It's like, oh, wow, okay, Rennie, you are a SWAT guy. You know, because I had to explain this thing, like, to my mom. You know, my mom is like, what? <laughs> mom, I'm a SWAT guy. That's stupid. I'm like, I love you. I just, I love you. <laughs> I love you. So that was the uh, progression there. So uh, that 05 or 06 rotation I spent in Iraq with a C-37. So you were 05 and 06 in Iraq, same time I was there. Yes. All right, I was at uh, I was at Rodwinia Palace Complex. I was at RPC. I was at uh, Area Four with yeah. the uh, ICF. I was I helped stand up Area Four. So yes, thank we, you. We we literally probably crossed. It's crazy. You're like the fifth person I've interviewed on this show in the last like 
two months who was in, in Baghdad the same time I was. Yeah, we worked That's with ICTF, 36 Commandos, all those guys. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yep, I, yep, I, yep. I ran the support battalion for the ISOF Brigade. That we were there at the same time. I yeah. know the ISOF Brigade. You guys had some group guys with the ISOF Brigade. Yeah. I was there yeah. at that exact time. Yeah. So I remember the, the, the white vans. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's come kidnap vans. Yep. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Uh, Palace on the Hill. Pool, yep. pool on Sundays. Yeah. Pool on Sundays. I took my uh, I took my troop to that uh, to that swimming pool on Sundays. It was kind of odd too because I had the uh, ICTF that I was working with, and I went up there and got clearance for it, if you would. And uh, some of the soldiers were coming out there, and they were like, "Are those Iraqi soldiers?" I was like, "Yeah, these are guys that's going out fighting a war, making sure that you know this goes well." So I figured they'd get a dip in the pool on the hill, yeah. perfume palace, if you would. Perfume Palace, yeah, yeah, it was good. It was good. It was, uh, it was, you know, and yeah, good time. It, it was. I mean, and it's crazy to think about how much happened in that year uh, and how much was built up over the course of that year. You know, I mean, I left when I got there. That support battalion was like twenty-seven Iraqi dudes and some broken AK forty-sevens. By the time I had left, I wrote the entire MTO for the unit um, with the assistance of some civilian contractors, of course. You know, retired 06s and whatnot, but. Wrote the entire MTO, you know, filled out the unit with over 300 Iraqi guys. They had brand new M16s, M2s, 249s, saws. I mean, they had they had everything, their own Humvees, you know, a whole mortar pool of brand new Iraqi Humvees and everything else. And, you know, we were running missions nonstop with those guys in and around Baghdad, uh, com, you know, combat convoys and everything, you know, in and around Baghdad. But right. that was kind of the, the whole the whole just of what I had accomplished there in, in, in a year plus and uh, you know, most re- rewarding experience of my career to say the least. Um, likewise, likewise. I, I would say that uh, I have, I have two things in, in my career that I've done that I can honestly say that, Hey man, uh, yeah, I did that. You know, mm-hmm. when though like not, and, and none of them were schools uh, that time in Iraq, Oh, five, Oh, six, uh, the number of bad guys that we were able to kind of take off the battlefield, if you would, uh, the support that we were able to provide to the people there locally, uh, just that that sense of security. And uh, I was on first a, elections. Uh, Remember the first elections that they held in December yes. of '05. The elections, everybody got the purple fingers. That was a big deal. Yes, <laughs> that's huge. Big deal. That is huge. You're actually being elected. You can vote for the first time, probably in. Majority of those people's life. Yep. You you have a choice who your your uh, commander in chief is. Yeah, I mean, that's, it, that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty I'm awesome. with you. You know, it's, it's you look back on it and you, sometimes you marvel at what you were able to do. Um, and what people don't remember, you talk about all the bad guys, and I, I say this routinely. You know, the surge happened in 07. The reason the surge happened is because 05 and 06 was the literal height of the violence in in Iraq. Um, you had Fallujah and Ramadi. Uh, you had the Marine issues and the guys off the bridge over there. Sadr City yep. was enough to make you shit your pants on a routine basis. Um, driving anywhere near that, I was like, nope, whoop, left turn. See, I'm going not, not, not going near there. Uh, make a wrong yeah. turn in Sadr yeah. City, you might not ever get out. Uh, number of IEDs and everything else was just at an all-time high. Roads were listed as black nonstop. And I, I was somebody who was on the streets, you know, four or five days a week just getting shit from point A to point B, picking up shit from point A to point B. 
Um, mm-hmm. and I, I joked that I said I, I saw more combat than 75% of the infantry because while they were guarding gates and prisons, I was running around the streets of Baghdad with when I had hair, when my hair was on fire and, and uh, you know, driving all over the place. I might have logged five, 6,000 miles on the streets of Baghdad uh, over the course of that year, um, which was something I never, ever in my wildest dreams thought I would ever do, right? Especially yeah, as, as a log that, guy. What, what guys don't realize is that, uh, as we say, pucker factor. When you have to get out there on a route that's black, that means that this route, somebody, there is a bomb on, on the this road. street. Yep. We just don't know where. I'm like, huh. <laughs> well, and what I found in my experience, at least, was, you know, depending on how long I needed to be on the road, um, taking the safer, more circuitous route uh, was sometimes more dangerous than not. Like, if it's the one thing I learned in the SF's community, Speed is your best friend. Uh, and I didn't want to yeah. sacrifice speed and initiative for anything. As long as I'm on the offensive and I'm moving as fast as I physically can, um, yes, then I am going to have a, a decided advantage over everybody else. And I can't tell you how many times I was on a convoy and I got behind some regular infantry convoy traveling at seven miles an hour along the road. And I'm literally honking on the horn, have them just lay on the horn, tell them to move over because we are going around them. And how many people I got into verbal fights with, and it ended up with, you know, shouting match back and forth between me and whatever other rank was. And I'm like, dude, get the fuck out of the way. We are leaving. I am not staying out here. My folks are not equipped to stay out here. You guys may be. We're not. So, uh, you know, it was – Yeah. that's the one thing I took away that – and every tactic that, you know and, – and the SF had their own – set of I remember this little flip book I forget what was what the title of it was but it was their own set of tactics of how to operate on the roads that was completely different from the conventional army correct yeah we we moved like we would do missions primarily at night first off yeah uh under nods and you're basically pulling on the steering wheel trying to get the gas pedal to go farther down on the floor mm-hmm. so if you can drive a Humvee uh, uh, MRAP, whatever vehicles, it was primarily Humvees uh, when we were moving at that time in 05. We had we had trucks like War Pigs and uh, a couple uh, like LMTVs, five tons. But if that vehicle goes 70 miles an hour, if you go down to 68, I'm going to cuss you out. I'm, and I don't care if we're the same team. No, we, speed is our security because we'll drive through an IED and by the time it's uh, initiated, you know, it's four vehicles behind our convoy, yep. you know, with us working all the other things that we have in place to, you know, help us move. So I, yes, always, yes, I always appreciated what, what you guys told me was the porcupine effect, you know, cause you had you, you, everything out, guns out, pointed out like, and the, the concept is simple for those who aren't military listening porcupine. When a porcupine also has all their, their, their shrills out, you don't go anywhere near to touch it. There were conventional forces driving around with gunners in the in the turret with their head blocked down below, you know, the turret because, you know, so many IEDs were on the road that they were getting – gunners were getting hurt and injured with shrapnel. So the, the, their tactic was, well, stay down low and hide and drive at four miles an hour. You're like this little soft target that nobody is scared of. But when you're sitting in yeah. an open back Humvee with one guy on one half of it with a 240 and the other guy with a 249 on the other side and there's four guns pointing outside of one vehicle, the terrorists are like, ah, maybe let that one go. There's probably a, an easier yeah. target. We'll, 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 those dudes look like they're here to fight, and that's not what our goal is. Our goal is just to hit a button and kill yeah. people. So if we miss, those dudes are coming after us. The dude with his head popped down inside the turret, we'll go get that guy. 
And that always made sense yeah. to me. I never fought it. It made sense to me. You know, if you're going to run into the lions, then go and hooting and hollering. Don't tiptoe in that damn thing. Run and yelling. You're going and yelling. Screaming. Yelling, fighting, kicking, pow, uh, the chair, the whips. All of it. <laughs> it's lying to them, man. We I'm need sorry. all of that. Sorry for reminiscing. It's just that we were there together. And it, no, you know, it's always, hey, look, I enjoy that too, man. A lot of people we don't get to talk to about that because uh, being in the acting space and civilian, people don't understand what it is to drive down the road and you know that it might blow up. And you have to go anyway. Yeah. And I you never, know? I did 90% of my missions in the middle of the damn day. You know, even I, crazy. Well, even crazy. It was, you know, the problem was is that they couldn't dedicate the resources for us to go at night because your guys were doing raids we and everything else. You were doing direct action, you were doing targeting and all the other stuff. So it was, hey, Mark, you need to figure this out. Okay. Well, you know, the other part of it was, I'm going to go at the little hottest part of the fucking day because guess what? You know what terrorists are? Lazy. Lazy. And when it gets hot, they go inside. So, you know, I, I know it sucks being 137 degrees, but we're fucking going because chances are most of the stuff they already planted this morning is blown up, and uh, they aren't planting any more until later on tonight when the sun goes down. So, you know, I mean, it, it's, it was that kind intel. of stuff. Yeah. You just, intel. Sometimes intel is common sense. And that was – but it was great. I mean, listen, I, I was very fortunate um, – and and after a couple of you know weeks after taking over, I, I think they I think they saw my competency and that I was willing to, you know, uh, accomplish the mission in any size, way, shape, or form. And and I was given a lot of the grace and a lot of the latitude to operate on my own by, um, you know, the company mm-hmm. commander and everything. And and I'll never forget my uh, I, I always mention him. Dwayne Cox was a sergeant major um, in Fifth okay. Group, and uh, that man broke everybody's balls relentlessly, particularly mine. Um, he chewed up cap. He chewed up regular army captains like they were fucking gum, and spit us out. He had no problem laying yeah. it to me on a routine basis. So uh, I always remember him, and and I have nothing but respect for him. I mean, he made me better, challenged me every day, made me better. Never yeah. allowed anything to slip. You know, it was constantly in my ass. And I'm like, I know I outrank you, but I'll better listen to what you say. Uh, he, he's got a lot more wealth of knowledge and experience, and I learned a lot from him. So um, <laughs> I'll never Who forget. I'll never forget the look on his face the first time I came back from a firefight. He just had this look on his like, oh, look at you. You uh got you know, yeah, that there. You're no longer a virgin. Congratulations. Yeah. There you go. Welcome to the world. Exactly. That's that's what it was. You know, is it to say? And but the look also said, shit, you actually made it out alive. Because I would have never bet that was the case. I would have thought you we would have brought you back home in a box at this point in time. So yeah, I mean that's you know that's sort of sometimes, the most, sometimes lucky is, is better to be lucky than good. Well, there's there's definitely a lot of that, but that was sort of my indoctrination yeah. into you know that was my 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 baptism by fire in the uh, in the SF community to say the least. But uh, yeah, good times to say the least. So back back to you. I'm sorry. Um, I was just in the fields for a moment. That deployment itself, uh, how much different was it from your first deployment in Afghanistan? Uh, the the Afghan like. In Afghanistan, our, our gunfights were at distance. Mm-hmm. You know, we weren't doing a lot of just straight direct action, things like that in Afghanistan. So when the bad guy can see you 300 yards out, they're going to start shooting because they have AKs. Uh, in Iraq, being that we were in a city, we're literally fighting urban. So urban, it, it, two completely different 
Can you imagine sitting in your townhouse and somebody just blew the door off the hinges next door at the townhouse next door? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a whole different, Iraq is a whole different animal. Uh, Afghanistan is one little mud hut sitting out in the middle of the woods, or excuse me, middle of the desert with uh, some crops around it. You're more concerned about the crops because they start putting the IDs in the crops. So, but yeah, it, it's totally different. And then the Iraqi fighters. Yeah, shout out to those guys, man. If you want to get into a, uh, you know, you want to get into a gunfight with a, with a guy that's, uh, you know, about that life. Yeah, the Iraqi soldiers. I I respected those guys a lot more than I did the Afghans. You mean the guys on our side, not the enemy? Uh, both. Both. Yes. Well, I mean, listen. Both. I, like, I, I respected the enemy in Iraq more so than I did Afghanistan. Because when you hide in the people, again, Afghanistan, they hide with the people. The guys in Iraq was like, hey, man. Hey, I uh, I got a gun too. So, and to your point earlier, you're talking about Sadr City. I think uh, during that rotation, we probably went into Sadr City uh, on a high value target, maybe three, four times in that rotation. And you can imagine how they all ended. They started and ended the exact same way. Gunfire. Yep. I mean, those that was without being without. <laughs> I want to choose my words carefully here. If you could take the word ghetto and put it in Baghdad, it'd be Sadr City. I mean, it was nothing but. Fact. It was nothing yeah, that's, but. That's where, it was as, whatever as your hardcore idea ghetto. Right. Whether it's like, oh, man. Whether it's Compton, Detroit, Baltimore City. I mean, put them right. all in one wherever. and drop them right there. And that is that that is and was Sadr City. Um, worst parts yeah. of, of America, violent-wise. And, and that was that, you know. That was like, Sada City was like, almost like, for anybody who's familiar with New York, it was like from downtown to almost like Times Square size, size-wise. You had a lot of blocks and a lot of city lot street of there and a lot of buildings. <laughs> um, and it was just, those are the two, between that and going to Fallujah uh, after everything had happened, that, that, when you talk about the pucker factor, those are my biggest pucker factors, was going to Sada yeah. City and going to Fallujah because I knew that it was a level of violence that was different than the streets of regular Baghdad. It was different than route Tampa or route Irish, right? Like it was, yeah. it was, that was violent. That was bad. And it was violent, but that was a whole nother level that, um, you know, you really had to have your head screwed on right to be able to handle uh, a d- different level of, of, yeah, you, uh, uh, here's a, here's a, a feather, a shame, a, a shameless plug. We went to a, um, I was a salt force team leader at the time. I was not the team. So I went to Boston. And uh, we went to Cider City. You know, things went sideways, as usual. And uh, my memory serves me correct. I think from that rotation, I was, uh, I think I'm the only guy that got a bronze star with V. With oh, wow. a V. So we were talking about that. And they was like, how? and one of my buddies said, how do you get a V device? I said, imagine the most dumbest shit you would ever do tactically. And he was like, okay. I said, now double down on that. <laughs> <laughs> now double down on that. I won't, won't talk about what I did or what what all transpired. But I said, yeah, man. What we can't imagine that you would never do. I did that, and then I doubled down. Did you guys take any casualties on that deployment? Nope. Knock on wood. Wow. It was insane. So I think we did over a hundred missions in five months. It's like 130, 140 minutes. It was some insane number. We were. We were rolling every day, like like to your point earlier, that that op tempo. Uh, and that was the height of, of the fighting. Mm-hmm. 
You know, it was the most violent time in Iraq, period. You know, we're doing the election. The president just, you know, he's been arrested. This is their, the, the whole country is in disarray due to the fact of we're used to being told what to do every day. Now we get to do what we want to do. And now it was like, uh, who is going to be the next mob boss kind of, kind of feel to it. You know, if we were in Colombia, when they killed Pablo Escobar, 12 drug dealers came up. Pablo was the only one. I think the same thing kind of in Iraq was, was that kind of, kind of vibe because he was a tyrant. People were scared of him. You're going to do what you, you're going to listen because this man would chop your head off in an open square or, machine gun you and your family up like we can't just let this ride <laughs> like hey man not for nothing what was you know, the, so yeah what was the biggest difference in the intelligence in iraq and afghanistan and now that you're an intelligence analyst what 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 is what how do you view it differently uh intel speed of in, information mm-hmm. you know like you said back to your point think about trailer park ghetto things like that everybody talks everybody talks so the information we would get in iraq it's more snitches, more people looking to gather information, more people actually just coming to your fire base saying, hey, we got a bad guy downtown. Um, as opposed to Afghanistan, the the distance of information, because you get one hut. Let's say we got a city and it's 10 huts and they call that a whole city. Like it's probably 10 families. As opposed to Iraq, you're in Manhattan gathering information. Yeah. Lots of peeps hanging around. Lots and lots, lots of peeps. Lots of people, you know, from, from guys with addictions to, you know, people that's trying to, you know, hey, I want to be American. I want to help you guys. I want to, you know, hey, I think what you guys are doing is right. Uh, to some dudes, I was just like, hey, if I tell you where the bad guys are, would you pay me? You know, I'm like, what? Well, the answer was yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. If we can sure figure is. out what you're telling us is the truth, then you'll get paid. Yes. That was <clears throat> and you'll get paid. Yes. If I can keep American soldiers from getting blown up on the highway, I'll pay you so I can go get the bad guy that's doing that. Yeah. I'll pay you. I will. I do it today. Like, hey, man, how much? Yes. It works. Good information. But now the crazy you know, part is after that deployment um, and you end up getting out in 2012, but you managed to survive from 06 to 012 without actually another combat deployment. Is I mean, you look, isn't that odd? Especially the SF community? Yeah, some, the fact that I was in the SIF, uh, the, the commanders in the extremist force, kind of a little bit about it, is like you're in seventh group, but when the rotation started and they're going through each battalion, and each battalion is doing nine months. You're going for nine months. You come back, somebody else going for nine months. Hey, I'm number seven on the rotation. Okay, so realistically, during that time, but during that time, we still had other uh, uh, pressing issues right. in, in, Columbia, in your area in of operations. Right. right, you couldn't abandon that mission for the other. Right, that's the right. Other. Hey, man, you, you're, we're just going to war over and over and over and over. And it was like, well, that's more of a fifth group area of operations. We have third group that that's rocking over there. We have several teams in seventh group. We got first group. We got 10. So when the whole special force community uh, went to war, just the rotations didn't roll in like right, that. Sure. And then that's, that's about, understandable. Uh, yeah. And for me, well, from 06 to 10, I uh, was still in group, made master sergeant, was a team sergeant. But I actually finished out my career as a special forces guy. But I went over to a spot called Ditra. Defense Threat Reduction Agency up at uh, Fort Belvoir. And 
Remember when I said, like, in the Ranger Battalion, I had blinders on? You know, hey, I had my rucksack. Went Special Forces, saw a, a much larger picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to Ditra, and I felt like an ant in an ant farm of how much I'm actually affecting things. Because, you know, as the, as the rank got higher, the picture got bigger, yep. if you would. Because now I'm looking at, okay, Defense Threat Reduction Agency, what is this about? Hey, man, we got dudes with dirty bombs. Okay, wait a minute. These ain't IEDs. <laughs> we're not, we're talking nuclear materials, bro. This is not me looking for a pressure cooker on the side of the road. Like, this is something that could move governments, countries, you know, things like that. I mean, so being a, being a part of that, it was, you know, like when they have things like, Hey, they're having the, I'm going to say, and, and excuse me for, for this, but what's called the Arab Spring or Summer yep. Uprising yep. Yep. over in Cairo? Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Well, our, me as an a intel guy, but now as a uh, master sergeant, my visuals of looking at Cairo is I'm looking at where would I put a dirty bomb at, not where would I put an IED. Sure. I mean, we're talking ma- major mass cal events, right? Like that's... <laughs> Exactly. You know, yeah, this, I'm looking at that now. Like, this, you know, this we're is gathering- different. This is, you know, again, I mean, let's in in very rough terms. This isn't the Boston Marathon bombing. This is, you know, if COVID was a biological weapon, right? Where a million yes. million people were killed, right? Like, and again, yes. forgive the COVID thing. Don't twist it. What it is, I'm just talking about in scale and in size of what it's capable of. So, you know, um, that that's kind of the, and that's it's a whole different world that you're thinking and your your aperture opens up in a completely different way yeah because I'm, I'm looking at the tv and i'm saying if one bomb went off there a hundred thousand people would be dead instantly another hundred thousand post blast effects radiation mm-hmm. how bad is this going to be if we're in cairo where they are and someone does this this is it's a nightmare thing so the aperture got much bigger on, on uh, what what the uh, uh, my requirements were while I was there. So um, let me ask you. I mean, I'm retired out of there. A lot of guys, you know, in group, uh, particularly the minute you get them away from direct action, especially since that was your your baby, your entire career. You know, they they go nuts. Like I, I, this, this sucks. This is terrible. I, I need to be in direct action the whole time. I mean, I, you seem like you were okay with it. Yeah, I was. I, I had a I mean, I've been on the ODA the whole time. You know, a lot of guys will do two or three years on the ODA and then they'll go to like SWIC and be a cadre or yep. go be a recruiter or, you know, they just kind of move around. Me, whole time, direct action. And uh, when I went up to uh, basically working up in Northern Virginia, Fort Belvoir area, you know, I saw the government as opposed to just seeing my ODA. What does that sour your taste, doesn't it? <sighs> Uh, yeah. it's like, it's like yeah. someone putting salt yeah. in the sugar in the sugar jar oh man yeah did... i'm like man so all the work that we were doing at ground level what what are y'all doing up here with that like why are y'all not affecting what but that's that's mark that's a ran and mark having a beer and uh, laughing about it, you know, yeah. to, to go in there because uh, I don't want to talk bad about the know, government. It provided me a great, great life. You're not, you're not the first person to have that sentiment. Uh, you're not the last person who will have that sentiment. Yeah. And you're not, 
talking to somebody who doesn't share that same sentiment when you learn about it, you know, and you start to realize, mm-hmm. and, and look, you have to provide fairness and accuracy to both sides. There's difference between operational and tactical goals and strategic goals, right? Like you have to understand right. and being on the O side of the house, that's what you learn repeatedly throughout ILE and, and everything else as you move up. You know, you, you start to transition from a operational tactical guy at the company level to a strategic and, and, and you know, different level uh, when you get to the field grade level. So um, that, that changes the game for you a little bit. But the job of the leaders, and I, I say this routinely, the job of the leadership and the people in the right positions is to close that gap and give the purpose operationally and strategically of what – operationally and tactically to what it feeds into strategically – and you get to this sense where, well, we just lost a dude on this on this operation tactically. How is mm-hmm. that helping? Any, that doesn't help anything strategically. You're not going to justify why my buddy is gone and what went on on a bad decision because strategically we needed this area of, of land or whatever it may be. That, never, that, that doesn't make anybody feel any better, and it, it certainly causes a lot of angst. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's the leadership's job to to bridge that gap and, and provide purpose uh, as to what you're doing in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, yeah, and that's and as I and like throughout my career, as I progressed in my career up to you know 2012, and then from there I went contracting because like my two years at Ditra, my last two when I retired, uh, retiring out, I uh, I like to say I saw the wizard. You know, the, uh, the Wizard of Oz, I pulled the curtain back and I said, okay, I get it now. I, I totally get it now. I'm not going to argue about you. I understand what this is. So I went contracting because I knew that strategically, that ODA isn't going to get it. They're not going to get a, a strategic vision of why I'm kicking the door in in Valley X in Afghanistan. They're, they're, they're just their intel reach isn't that far. So I took my intel hat and went back to contracting. So that way I could uh, kind of let the guys know, like, hey, man, I've, uh, I've been over here to Afghanistan, been years since I've been here. However, intelligence is intelligence. It's developed significantly over the past 10, 12 years. And, you know, I'm going to come in and rock that. But from a direct action headspace, and from a strategic headspace, because as an intel analyst, I'm sitting in with the boss. You know, I'm, I'm with the boss. I'm not the junior combo guy. Right. You know, cleaning my weapon and brushing off my radio, just wondering where I'm going tomorrow. You know, so well, to kind of the, help mold that battle space. Exactly. Because the intel is what, what the commander is going to use to make strategic decisions. Right. Absolutely. At the end of the day. Yes. You can talk about it. But it's like this. Hey, man, that intel dude, he's going to save your life. If he's worth the salt, he'll keep you alive. That's just the bottom line. Now, Whether you, you like it or not. <laughs> you, you deployed four times as a contractor. Um, yes. I mean, you know, obviously you're not out there doing it. Was there a part of you that was itching to go on a mission? or, or be? I mean, maybe you did get to go on there, but you, you, obviously you're not the guy you know, with, with the breach at the door and the weapon following through. Correct. Um, uh, yes. Yeah. Well, so one, one great thing about being on the teams, 
it's like, hey man, when uh, you 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 kind of you kind of age out, mm-hmm. you know. At this time now, I'm I'm uh, in Afghanistan. I'm 41. Uh, I, I still got the the go. I'm in the gym every day still to this day. You know, I'm, I'm getting after it. But I knew that adding a civilian to a detachment is a bad idea. But if I could provide that 18 Fox on that ODA, hey, guy, check this out, man. I understand that, you know, you have a, a certain directive, but I'm going to leak in a little information from, from the old man. I'm going to put some stuff together to kind of so you can visualize from your helicopter ride to actually where you're going. Because these guys are just planning, I'm going to hit this building or, or at this grid and kill all the bad guys. Okay, uh, we need you not to kill none of the bad guys because we need them for questioning. Uh, two, do you know how you're getting there? Three, what if something happens on the way? You didn't think about that. No, because you just want your weapon. You want to kick a door in. So me being a retired uh, master sergeant from the SIF, you know, with a little little bit of, of street cred, if you would, that, you know, the guys are like, okay, hey, you know, Rand, he, you know, he, he kind of know what he's talking about. So it, w- it was good to have that still be there kind of rubbing elbows with the team guys when they go out. But it got to the point where I kind of felt like too good for my job. Got too good, man. Ego starting to get a little flip to the point where it's like this. You get a young captain in, and he's fired up. He's ready to take the world on the enemy. And you still got your legs, and you're trying to explain to him that you should, you know, kind of slow down, come off the, come off the gas a little bit to uh, just ensure the uh, safety of your detachment. So I found myself arguing with young captains. And at that moment, I was like, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. Hey, sir, you got a great plan. I'm not going to argue with you here about this and flip this over. And then I noticed that, like, you know, when I would put intel out, guys would go out and adjust on the fly, and somebody would come back shy. And I would just ask simple questions like, so did you guys go route one or two? Well, we, we, at the last minute, we fraggled and decided to go route two. Like, we changed the plan. I said, well, I told you that they had, you know, 50 IEDs on route two, and there was only three on route one. Yeah, but the commander wants to go faster. I was like, yeah, that's fine. In Iraq, just Afghanistan, you travel slow here because you have the mine detectors. Guy comes back shot. I was like, you know what? I'm done. I'm, I'm giving up the contract life. It was 2017. I'm the old guy. You guys got it. I don't. I'm going to be an actor. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) Well, I I mean, you know, the question was, okay, so what do you do next? And how do you figure out? But did you know that's what you wanted to do? Yeah. How? Like, where, 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 was this brooding underneath the surface the whole time? It was. Were you doing stand-up comic skits for the team guys while you were bored or what? I mean. You know what? I'm a good storyteller. You know how you got that guy that can sit around the team room and just bullshit with everybody? Yeah. I'm a good bullshitter. Well, you know, so I got I. a lot of life experience. I got life stories. Yeah. You know, tell a good story, man. Be impactful. You know, be engaging. Pull people into your conversation. Uh, and uh, I was sitting in Afghanistan, and I, I'm, I'm looking on the internet at just different areas because me and, me, uh, me and the wife, we decided we're leaving Fort Brad. We're not moving to Virginia. Okay. Uh, she's from Savannah. Let's get something danger close to your parents, but ain't no way I'm living down the street from your parents. You know what I mean? Good call. 
card note. That's your new so, ver- that's your new version of Sada City. The in-laws. Exactly. Yeah, down the street from the in-laws. Mm-mm. I'm gonna pass on that. So uh I saw this spot called Pinewood Studios. Hey, they're building Pinewood Studios in Fayetteville, Georgia. The uh, irony, right? I'm in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I go from Fayetteville, North Carolina to Fayetteville, Georgia. Yeah. They built this spot, uh, Pinewood Studios, and I was sitting in Afghanistan with uh some of the analysts, and I said, Hey man, I'm gonna build a house by Pinewood Studios and I'm gonna become an actor. And they were like, Okay, so it's 14, I want to say, 14 time frame, 13, 14, when they broke ground here. And I said, yeah. I called the wife. I said, build me a house in Fayetteville. She built me a house in Fayetteville. And now I live 10 minutes from Pinewood. One thing, if nothing, I learned about intelligence is you have to be in that space to gather that information. How do you become an actor? Well, hang out with some actors. You'll find out. So a lot of guys in my neighborhood work in the industry. And, you know, for years, like I lived over here and true enough, I'm new to the industry, if you would. Um, I've been at it now for, say, a year and a half, but I spent, you know, then let's take away two years, COVID. But I basically spent two years establishing relationships, you know, because I want to find out, is this something that I actually want to do? You know, because I hear the stories, you know, hey, man, you become an actor, you're going to be on cocaine and then people are going to sue you. And then then me, too. And I'm like, wait. Wait, wait. So I got to be a cocaine addict, a rapist, sexist. You know what I mean? Like, wait a minute. What are, what picture are we painting for this world called Hollywood? Um, lack of intestinal fortitude can get you to do anything. Yeah. Well, that's something that I, I have a problem with. You know, I don't. Hey, you know, so uh, just jumped out there. Uh, great job uh, working contracting. You know, I mean, great. You know, I'm like, oh, man, you know, me and the wife, we're, we're high on the hog, so to speak. And, uh, and when I went acting, I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. And my first role was I was a background guy, which is like we call extras or whatever. Yeah. But I was on Ozark, bro. Ah, man. Right. I was, I was hooked. Right then, they, they got me in. They threw me on the boat. I was a fish out the water into the boat. So, Getting what, to be what, around. What, to, I'm trying to like what season were you in? Do you remember? I've always uh, season four, episode seven. Okay, so uh, you're in the final first. season. Yeah, final season. Part one of the final season, first seven episodes. Yep, episode and uh, uh probably about the first twenty minutes into that show, you see a guy standing there looking tough with a blue shirt on and a sport coat. I was one of the uh, FBI agents standing. Uh, that that cast that that group mm-hmm. was so accepting, so receptive. Just nice. Uh, and to that point, a friend that I met, because I also trained Marsoc. I'm a, I know how to work. So I trained Marsoc. I met a guy named Cole, trained Marsoc. He worked on sets. I said, hey, can you get me on Ozark? He said, yeah, man, I'll see what I could do. He got me on Ozark. I got a whopping $250 check. My wife said, you're going back to the government tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, very well done. So, by the way, yeah. some of the, uh, s- since doing so, um, you uh, have been on projects like Emmett Till, Young Rock, Civil War, Mayor of Kingstown. Now, how do you get into this stuntman deal? Like, because acting is one thing, but being a stuntman is a whole different level of maniacal. Yeah, um, you know, the, the majority of guys that I met were stuntmen. I uh, met a guy, Mike Indoso, who's a, a 20-year stuntman, super good dude, one of my best friends. Uh, we established a friendship years ago, and that's that's 
that is definitely, he's definitely my ace. And, uh, and I was talking to Mike Indoso, and he was like, hey, man, I honestly think you, with your, you know, Rangers, Special Forces, you know, mountaineering, pretty much, I play you on TV. And I was like, huh. He was like, yeah, he said, the actor doesn't move like that. You know what you see? You see a stuntman. Those are not the actors. We're, you would not throw uh, uh, the main actor off a roof because if he got hurt, the movie would stop. And I was like, oh, okay, so... Do the risk. Teach the guys that's doing the risk. I said, oh, this seems like an easy wheelhouse for me because, you know, SF guys, train, advise, and assist. I'm an instructor. I take instruction well as well. So stuntman was kind of like a natural kind of feed-in. It was like, hey, man, can you swim? You know, it's funny. It's like until uh, I was a precision driver. A precision driver is like a background dude, right? But you drive the cars on movie sets. A lot of people don't never see the guy that's driving you know, so I met the coordinator, like met the, the supervisor. And he was like, hey, I got a question, kid. We're doing a uh, we're doing a movie till obviously I'm working on the movie and we're doing a scene where we're going to have kids in the water. I need an African-American lifeguard. Can you swim? And I said, absolutely. He said, this is easy. He pulled me out the car from precision driving and basically knighted me as a stuntman on the spot. Wow. Yeah. 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 And, 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 uh, and for that, for that in itself, uh, his name is Lex getting, uh, for that in itself, man, just, he took shot on me. Boom. Lex put my career path on two stunts. So he gave my first opportunity. Like, what do you need to do? If one of these kids drown, I'm going to kill you, man. I'm like, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I will not let one of these children drown. Fair enough. So, uh, yeah, that was my was, first. Uh, was that worth more than a whopping two hundred and fifty dollars? Significant. Okay, all right, just checking because <laughs> you came back to <laughs> yeah, work yeah. again with that one. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, you better yeah. get back Some to work. Contracts pay. Good. Yes, good for you. <laughs> yeah. So what's what's for you like in the acting space or the stuntman space? What's what's your future? What do, what, what do you want to do? Um, I, I like action movies as we all do, um, but actually, I really like comedy better. Just, I love laughing. You know, I remember sitting around with the guys just watching all different comedy. The more a slapstick, you know, just like this is the dumb and dumber of, you know, of, of America, if you were watching those type of actors and then seeing the transition of actors going from stunts to comedy, you know, uh, that I see as a, a lot more challenging. So, I love comedy. Like, I, as far as acting goes, I'm so new, and that's such a, a broad field, you know, because it's about, you know, what do you look like? Who do you know? Uh, in stunts, it's more or less like, eh, I can kind of throw you in on something and set you on fire. So we don't have to see, per se, what you look like. Yeah. So I'll work a lot more in stunts. So it's like, hey, if you want to work every month? Go stunts. You want to be an actor? You're going to audition two, three hundred times, and you might work once a year. Yeah. So, um, you know what I mean? It, it stands to reason. No. Uh, that I have yet to find a role for a dashingly good-looking, broad-shouldered, short little Italian guy uh, that <laughs> they're looking right? for that I can slide right into uh, as far as taking my making my acting career take off. So as it stands, I'll just you know be a podcast host in the meantime. Um, I love it. I'm, I'm here too. I'm with you. I'm, I'm not on nobody's movie set today. I'm actually, I'm with you today. Which, which and I and I love this. And I'm going to tell you that earlier, Mark. Thanks, brother. 
just just straight up, man to man. Thanks, man. Because a lot of people don't, you know, because the 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 separation from the military, they don't hear the survivor stories. All they hear is the the oh, so and so killed himself, or this guy's on drugs, or yeah. two divorces later. No, nah, man, I'm I'm killing it in this space because of what guys like you are doing. You know, so it's about telling stories, right? Thank you. I I genuinely appreciate that. Very humbled. But, you know, it's like you said, it's just about telling good stories. Right. And that's what this whole, you know, podcast has been about. We're coming up on six years of doing this and 300 episodes. And, and, you know, it's it's pretty special when you think about it in general that, you know, we've uh, we've been able to create this this huge following. And uh, and we've just shared some of the stories of America's, America's greatest people and America's greatest heroes. And, and, you know, for that, uh, I'm thankful. And, and we've been able to, to, you know, um, put history, you know, into video and audio format to last forever. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we've, we've chronicled history yeah. and that's, that's pretty awesome. You know, one day your, your kids will get to say, you know, daddy, what, what did, what did you do in combat? And you can go, Hey, listen to my episode of the, the hazard ground. You'll hear my entire story right there. And, uh, that, that, I think that's something special. So thank you. I appreciate totally the good words. Yeah, totally um, and, and that said, I will still continually bother you to get a role in a movie at some point in time. I got you. I got you. Look, I got you. I got you. Look, you Listen, know what? We if you to- want to throw a body around, I'll volunteer. That's fine. You see? And I, I got you. Hey, look, I'll, I'll have you over. We also do some filming here uh, in, my, in my space, you know, where I live at. We'll get, because a lot of, you know, uh, it's called reels. You know, you get a little reel together, two or three minutes, and I'll bring you by, man. And so you can just kind of see the the sausage making, yes. if you would, yeah. of that. Because we'll, we'll do – it's kind of like our auditions as stuntmen. We're not standing up reading lines. Hello, my name is Ren. You know, no, it's – I'm going to throw a punch. You're going to dodge it. You're going to punch me or, you know, and I'm going to do this, that, and other. We'll, we'll do a thing. And uh, we call it dancing or choreography. You just get a good dance partner. Mm. Well, and uh, and then as somebody's looking to book a guy, hey, we need we need a guy named we need a five foot ten like for me, we need a black guy with a beard five ten, hundred eighty five pounds. You know anybody? You're like, I know Ren. Yeah, you know what I mean exactly. <laughs> I know Mark. You know or whatever. You know so you can right. you can just kind of uh, uh, so that thing. But it, it is a uh, it's a very competitive field. One hundred percent. Who you know. Yeah, well. Even, even, even more so, who likes you. Well. They don't tell you. Anymore. Yeah, that's, yeah, listen. Um, a lot of people that know you. There's a litany of people who know me. The, the list of people who actually like me is rather short. Um, yeah. that, that said, you said two things that I'm not really familiar with, uh, dancing and showing you your sausage. So I, I'm just, you know, that's not really my, my, my game, but I'll come over and check out your operation. So there you go. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Look forward to it. <laughs> uh, finally, here, real quick, um, the memoir, the book, uh, "Broken Toys." Where mm-hmm. are you with it? I mean, I know uh, that that it's still a process that's be, it's being done here. When are we getting it published? Like, one, what's it about? Why do you want to write it? And and you know, where is it right now? Uh, I linked up with a guy named uh, Nick Childs. Uh, Nick Childs is actually a Pulitzer Prize winning writer. Uh, he's written several books. He actually is a professor at UGA in uh, journalism. He heard my story from a mutual friend. Hey, the kid from Dayton, you know, grew up, you know, inner city, didn't have much going for himself, you know, other than family, you know, his mom, his handicapped little brother, joined the military, blah, 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 learned Kung Fu. Now he's pushing to be an actor. All right. Uh, Nick was like, 
Okay. Homeless to actor. I've heard that story. What's the difference? And I told him, I said, I'm a Green Beret now. And he was like, okay, I've never met one of those on this planet. And he was intrigued. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, no, man. And uh, we sat down and started talking. And he was like, you know what? If you could kind of describe what your separation from the military was to your transition, I said, it's like a broken toy, man. You know, you, you, uh, they use you up. They, they, they use you up. They chew, you, they put you in that meat grinder and they turn it on and you perform or you get on. Well, you could perform up until a certain point, but like a football player, if you ain't making the plays no more, I'm just going to throw you away like a broken toy. And, uh, and he was like, wow, you know, that's interesting. And, uh, we sat down, uh, linked up with a uh, young lady named Laura Love. She, uh, uh, you know, she started with Idea Architects. Now she, she's moved on to her own independent thing. And she's like, we don't want to just Amazon your book. We want to get you published because this story is bigger than just an army dude that got out and, you know, he was an actor. Because, like, now if you ask me, every actor slept in their car. Right? Is that mm-hmm. the story that we hear? Every actor slept in their car. Yep. I slept in my car for three years and now I'm a... Okay, that's good. Cool. I never slept in the car. Um, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna compare how bad we sucked. How about this? My friends would kill your friends. And I talk to my friends and I try to keep them from being killers, broken toys. These men are walking around the world with no uh like no support system. So like mm-hmm. behind me, I have what's called the wall of one. So I I, uh, I entreat guys to come by and pin up something on the wall so we can have something to brag about. Like, yeah, I was at Ren's Whiskey Room and I put something up on the wall at one. So it's like several random different things, but I want to give them a piece of ownership. Some of that you matter. Hey, man, come by somebody that chewed some of the same dirt. I mean, because Mark, let's be honest. I got a brother start with a V. That comes with PTSD, if nothing. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Nothing else. They, they, they don't put a medal on your chest for that PTSD part, but it, it certainly comes alongside of it. Exactly for that, and and a lot of guys, you know, in our community, and they left it out of the write up on the on the six three eight that, uh, you know, when they wrote that down. But you know, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he was he was nice. But when I got out and got my DD two fourteen, I remember one of the uh, commanders that was retired, and he said, "Wow, kid, you got a two page DD two fourteen. You've done a lot of things." I was like, "Yeah, I've done, I've, you know, I've done some stuff." But when I separated from the military, I went home and I started drinking because I was used to having a beer in the team room with the guys, right? Get finished working, clean the guns, have a beer. It's the broken toy. I start calling the guys. We were just together and they're too busy to have a beer, to talk with me. They got work to do. Now I'm separated from the military, retirement, honorable discharge. The best alcoholic you ever want to hang out with. I promise you. I was the best guy. Bro, what you doing? Drinking. Bro, it's two o'clock in the afternoon, man. And you're like, you're sideways drunk. Like, what's up? You know, depression. Wasn't on the teams no more. My phone wasn't ringing. Guys didn't need me. And I was like, man, they kind of just threw me out like a broken toy. So that's, that's one of the things that, you know, now our mental health uh, is being brought to the forefront. Because, I mean, just like our Vietnam era guys yeah, to, to, to present day guys, you know, and luckily now I would, I would like to think 
that we're doing better by it, you know, for the guys that are getting out this, you know, sped up or things like that, you know, because, you know, it, it, I hate this term. It is what it is. Hey, man, if you have ever killed somebody, you should talk to somebody. If your friend has been killed, you should talk to somebody. If you ever went somewhere where you felt like you may get killed, you should talk to somebody. And uh, hopefully with the book, where is it at? I don't know. Uh, hopefully I'll get it out sooner than later because, you know, five years from now, we won't care about the war no more. That won't. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> sad to say because, you know, last time I checked, it's been 15, well, 10, over 10 years since I've been shot at and my shit ain't gone away. Right, right, right. My, last time, well, 2017, last time I've been shot at. And I was like, I'm going to go home. Yeah, and, and coming back home, you know, from being, and I'm a contractor. Right. And I'm a contractor, and, and I'm, I'm still under duress because rockets don't have names or faces or nothing. Indirect fires, indirect fires. Mort- so, mortars don't care where they land. <laughs> mortars don't care. They don't care. So with that, yeah, so the, the book, more of a memoir, kind of sharing my story a little bit more. This podcast also gives me another uh, platform to kind of reference uh, with Nick and Laura to say, hey, uh, this is going to happen. And then where are we at in today's society? Like right now, today, you cannot tell me that we are not a wounded nation. Broken toys. We are a wounded nation. Yeah. I mean, that's just I see from my foxhole. No. You know, it's, it's I, and, I, and I have no idea where to start, but I know if we can identify, hey, our, our, our child crisis, why do we have so many unadopted children in America? I don't know. Why is it so hard for the adoption process, the interviews and things like that? I would love to go to a single parent home that wanted me as opposed to growing up in the system. I love the title. I, I genuinely do. Um, where are you now with alcohol and everything else? Oh, now, now, uh, Sunday football beer guy. That's it. You know, and, and that was more or less just getting out of the military. Didn't have anything to do. So my, my binge days to kind of put it in perspective, it was probably six months of just getting as drunk as damn possible, being a complete a-hole to the wife and everything. The wife had to talk with me. She was like, all right, um, enough. Like, okay, I've never known you to get drunk two days in a row let alone five and we've been married. So what's, what's up killer? You know, Hey Rambo, <laughs> come on back to the, come back to the campfire, man. So like now, you know, I'm more of a social guy, you know, yeah, no, we'll have a beer or something like that, but nothing, nothing of, of that level of I'm waking it and drinking. No, that's, you know, that's I, good. I have something to do. I have a purpose. These broken toys have no purpose. Right. And that's, you know, that's the hard part is finding that purpose. Right. I mean, that gets kind of, it's for people who have spent 20 years always with a mission, always with a direction, always mm-hmm. with, a, with one more fight in them, so to speak. Uh, you take all that away and, um, you know, you, you, as a broken toy, it's not even nobody wants to play with you. It's that you, you don't even you're not even on a shelf anymore. Like no one's even looking at you. You're just kind of out by yourself. Uh, you're forgotten about. And that's that's more than anything that's uh, that's tough to deal with. So it's listen, yeah. man. I'm I'm amazed by all your success. The transition from military to movies can't be easy. Uh, it's not one that many people ever take. 
You know, a lot of us who put on a uniform for all these years just hope to go get a cushy job making six figures and, you know, uh, (laughs) not being yelled at seven hours a day and not having to get up for PT at 5 a.m. in the morning. So um, the the non-traditional folks of us who who work a little bit of a different life, it's, um, you know, it's, it, it's, I think in certain cases, the transition is a little bit easier, but it's a little bit harder because um, you're alone, right? Like you're still in a world where yeah. there's not many other military, military people around you. And that's, that's always, you know, it's always tough. Um, and that, yeah, it's, uh, it, is, it is. Even in the, the, the acting world now, I, I told the person that I was a Green Beret and they said, is that like a Navy SEAL? Yeah. I said, sure. Yeah. It's, go, go with that. The start- Yes, sure. Never mind. I'll, I'll never, I'll, I'll never forget. I'll tell you a funny story. I'll, I'll never forget this for as long as I live, and I'll leave the names out just to protect the innocent and ignorant. Um, I was interviewing a professional football player at one point in time, um, and uh, I had just gotten back from my first deployment, and I was working back in sports media. And uh, the individual had heard that I had just gotten back from Iraq, and you know, he said to me, "He's like, oh, you just got back from Iraq." I was like, "Yeah." He's like, "So what's that like, Call of Duty?" And I went, yeah, sure. Um, and, and Madden is exactly the same as your job, so we'll call it even. You know? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Me playing yeah, Madden yeah. is the same as your job, sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just that simple. A couple of buttons and everything's fine. Minus the respawning, of course, you know. In, in I love Baghdad. that. I love that. <laughs> I love that. I'm still in that, yeah. FYI. Oh, are you? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm still that. I'm still that. So when somebody says, hey, is that like a Navy SEAL? Like, no, it's just no, like Call of Duty. No. Just play Call of Duty. Yes. You'll get the same exact experience. It works. I'm a Call of Duty guy. <laughs> you know that scream with the that's gun right there? That's me right there. Anyway. Yeah, that's me. All right. Awesome, man. Listen, it's great to talk to you. Uh, we're definitely going to stay in touch. You and I are going to link up. I'd uh, love to come down and see the, uh, the, the the operation you got down there, a.k.a. your sausage. Um, and uh, we, will, we will check it out. But it's awesome, man. Where can people get a hold of you? You're on social media, right? People can find you out there? Yeah. Uh, I'm Social media, Ren Lagon, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, basically, those are those are the main two platforms. Rent for Lagan on uh, LinkedIn. That that's that's pre- pretty much what I kind of stick with. You know, the uh, Instagram and Facebook is kind of more of my uh, travel things, if you would. And Rent Lagan, and you'll see my hashtag twenty two pounds. Yeah, I meant to ask you uh, what, what the hashtag, what, what the hat's all about, and everything, because I saw a couple of your buddies wearing it as well. Yeah, uh, one you got to come by the whiskey room to get one. Okay, first got it. Uh, two, it's a uh, it's a millionaire mindset. Twenty two pounds is how much a million dollars in hundred dollar bills weigh. I'm gonna say wow. it again. Okay, right. So a million and hundreds. When I was a kid, if you told me I made a million dollars, I'd be the richest man in the world. Right now, it's kind of like the aspiration of finances. I put it on a hat to show people just how ins- it's insignificant. This is because actually it's only 22 pounds, man. So it's attainable. So I put it on the hat and say, hey, man, every day we should feel like a million bucks, no matter what. Let's get over the bank account. Let's forget about that. Because whatever I need, I can pick the phone up and call somebody because that wealth is more important than the money. Amen. Perfect. said 22 pounds. Make sure you guys check out and be on the lookout for Broken Toys. Uh, the memoir from Ren. Uh, great to talk to you, brother. So excited for your future. So blessed to uh, to get a chance to speak with you. And uh, certainly happy that uh, uh, you've had so much success post-military career. But it's been great getting to talk to you, brother. Thanks a lot, brother. You take care. We'll definitely get you down here for the uh, sausage. You got it. <laughs> Ren Legon, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. All right, Mark. Thanks a lot. 
You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.